John Andertrek back again. It is the 4th of December. I'm recording from my home in Idaho County, Idaho. Nick Drager from Alberta uh, is joining me. He's a lifelong uh, union organizer, activist. Uh, we came together from an article he had in Organizing Work, uh, the 10 Common Mistakes of Organizing. We've been going through it. And our next one up is Framing Fights as All or Nothing. So go ahead, Nick. So, yeah, another one is basically, it, it's a common refrain to hear, if we don't win this, we're hooped and we're screwed. And we need to get this one thing or else the campaign's dead. And the simple fact is that 99.9999% of the time, that statement is just BS. Um, most campaigns, their existence hinges on whether or not the members are, are engaged and whether or not they're involved. And they can weather a fair amount of demoralization and setbacks as long as the organization has a culture of framing setbacks as setbacks and not catastrophes. Um, it, almost any time you're going to have pushback against particularly a direct action strategy, is, the main point is going to come is whenever something happens where the action doesn't quite go quite as well as planned, or maybe it fell a bit short of the goals, or maybe there just weren't quite enough people involved. And as long as you go into that preparing expectations that actions are like that, and just like, say, filing a grievance, you don't always win. Sometimes the arbitrator gets a completely wacky ruling or whatever. Um, not everything is ever 100%. And also, not every fight is ever 100% or 0%. You, you can have partial wins, and you can also have partial victories and partial losses. And you need to be able to talk about those kinds of categories and those kinds of where you fell short and where you did well in order to actually have an honest assessment of what you're capable of and what you're doing. Um, so, so basically what you're trying to do is, is, is not have the campaign tell itself that defeat is a catastrophe. And that means basically going into it by saying, you know, this is what happens if we win, this is what happens if we lose, and this is where we'll go from there. That's interesting, and, and I see how these tie together, Nick, the way you put them together, which is uh, a very exemplary, uh, uh, well done. It, to me, it kind of also ties into inoculating. You're inoculating uh, your fellow workers, your comrades, uh, into uh, what to expect. That you know, it, Again, you know, uh, uh, the way I try to poetically put it, uh, wins and losses, but no defeats. I mean, you, uh, you know, all the all – the, uh, Cliches. You pick yourself up and, and go from there. I mean, is that a correct uh, perspective to some degree? Yeah, absolutely. So, again, of all or nothing, uh, because we know life, you know, certainly in the worker struggle, uh, it's, you know, it's it's legion. It's historic. It's been going on forever. Uh, so you have to uh, keep that in mind. And it seems like the next one, your next point, it, it uh, ties into that. If I'll say that, you can correct me. Framing fights as one punch. Yeah, so this is just another one where, and, and it is very tied to the previous one, where you think, where basically you present it as, well, if we win this strike, we will get the pension plan we want. Or if we win this job action, we turn policy we don't like. And the truth of the matter is that almost all fights happen with more than one tactic being used, more than one thing, be, and more than one engagement. You need to keep continuous and 
often escalating pressure on the employer in order to win things, which means you need to think in terms of a strategy, which is basically an overall plan, an overall dynamic of bringing pressure on the employer that comes from a few different angles and a few different ways in order to make sure that you're kind of pushing that boss to the position you want them and where they and where they, where you want them to go. So basically, when you're framing things as a one fight, uh, one punch fight, you're winding up with with a situation where you're kind of telling yourself and everybody else that if you get this one job action, then they'll then they'll cry uncle and they'll give in. And that's just that's not how basically that's not how employers conceive. And that's interesting. And looking at your your uh, article here, uh, you, I, I like your comment at the bottom of it. Just like everything else in general, it's better to underpromise and overdeliver. Uh, that does not seem to play into uh, humanity's uh, overall uh, situation of uh, the, the way people are conditioned uh, for whatever reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, part of it is also just about building people's confidence. And if you overpromise and underdeliver people are going to feel a little bit deflated. So you want to make sure that you, you manage expectations and have people understand that they can, they can, you can develop and build over time. Okay. Right. Right. Again, right. Again, you're, 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 these are all linked. I mean, they're, they're standalone, but they're also linked, which is to me very impressive. Nick, uh, the next one, uh, focusing on where you are strong instead of where you are weak. And, and you start in your article in that paragraph, this is the one I'm still getting over. Uh, so go ahead. Tell us about that. I mean, it's just there's a natural inclination that say you're working in an industry and you've got a campaign going. And let's say it's like 40,000 workers and you've got a couple of units in that 40,000 workers where you're just white hot and really strong. It, there's a natural inclination to want to focus on building off of the strength of those units that are really strong. But the problem is that the dynamics inside those units are probably something there's something going on that's a little bit different than the other units. And so it, it's not just simply a matter of replicating what's happening there. And then the flip side of it is also that they don't need your attention. <laughs> They're doing okay. So you have a finite amount of resources. You have a finite amount of energy. What you want to do is go and look at where you have potential to build things up. Look at where you aren't so strong and go and build there in order to bring them up closer to the level of the, the strongest parts of the, uh, of, of, the uh, of the overall workforce in order to kind of have uh, be able to basically deploy even and uh, control kind of tactics that are kind of, and also to make sure that the members kind of develop in an even kind of way so that they they don't so basically they don't just think that the people over in that workplace that's really really strong are superheroes or special or something right Okay, that's very interesting, right? Because uh, again, because you want it to be. Uh, let me use this term, and again, I'm the amateur. You want it to be organic. You want to develop that leadership all across the board. And again, you don't want workers to be looking at the organizer as a superhero or uh, another side of the of the organization of the of the units or the plant as being the superheroes and getting that dependency because uh, that's not how we're going to gain in the long run, is it, Nick? No, it's not. So, uh, so that's interesting. So, and then uh, your, I believe this is your last one here, Nick. Ventriloquizing, excuse me, I probably mispronouncing ventriloquizing the workers, uh, ventriloquists. Uh, that used to be a big thing uh, when I was a kid. But uh, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to make uh, a light of it, but go ahead into that point. It says you say if often it's another organizer disagrees about a decision. 
Uh, that's how you start the, so, the yeah, article, the paragraph, excuse me. Organizing campaign. <clears throat> Again, you're going to have a dynamic where you're building up the basically the strength of the workforce and you're building people's confidence up and you're teaching them to teach the recipe. And in that process, especially when you're starting out, but even towards the end, you are going to have a de facto leadership role with certain people, at least among the leaders. You're going to have and you need to be able to own the positions you take. You need to own the advice you give. And you can't go and basically use other people as a sort of sock puppet to uh, argue your positions. If they're not, if they don't believe it themselves, if they aren't arguing it themselves, it's not their position. It's your position. And if they're arguing your position, basically from a, a, a position of profound trust, you need to own the fact that you actually did influence them in taking that position. Because if you can't separate yourself from the people you're mentoring and developing, if you can't separate the positions that you take and the positions that you've cultivated and developed, you can't, you can't step out of the equation. You're not able to remove yourself from that organizing dynamic, which again is essential for a sustainable organization in the long run. It's not something that you can do right off the bat, removing yourself, but it's an inevitability for an effective campaign. That's that's a, a very interesting. I, one can see that again, it, it, and I imagine that's difficult because uh, the, to be the ones up front, to be the organizer, you, uh, you're you're taking a risk, you're putting a lot of commitment to it, and um, people are people. You know, we, we want the recognition, uh, uh, but again, if this is your ultimate goal to have uh, something that will stand when you're gone, um, you just got to uh, realize that, don't you, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then in conclusion, the headwaters of all trouble. So basically, almost any organizer has to have a certain amount of nerve. You have to have enough ego to stand up for what you believe in. You have to have enough ego to approach other people cold about what you believe in with a plan to win them over. And that, 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 that certain amount of ego and nerve, it's, just, it, it's really important and it's kind of a prerequisite for being involved in organizing. But the next hurdle is harder because it's kind of runs counter to the first hurdle to getting into organizing. And that's the ability to remove yourself from the equation, the ability to step back, the ability to shut up, and the ability to kind of slowly let other people take charge and run the show. So, so ultimately, a good organizer is able to approach people, talk people, win them over to positions, convince them, but a great organizer is a person who's able to also basically build people up to the point where they're not necessary there anymore and to the point where people challenge them, where people are starting even maybe to push them out of the equation and where they develop in their own way in their own direction. Wow, that's uh, that's interesting. That, and that uh, uh, speaks volumes for people like you, Nick, and your success in this. Uh, Nick Gregor, uh, uh We've gone through your points here. Uh, in the conclusion, 10 points, 10 common mistakes in organizing. Uh, they're highly illuminating. Uh, they stand alone but tie into each other, which I think many people can appreciate a lot to learn here. Again, this was uh, something that uh, one of your many articles appears that's in organizing work. Uh, how would you find that? Uh, uh, it's an Internet publication. Correct me if I'm wrong. And how would you find it? Yeah, it's organizing.org. So O-R-G-A-N-I-Z-I-N-G dot W-O-R-K. 
Well, that's about as simple as I get. You guys did a good job with that. Nick Drager, uh, anything else you want to add? We went over these points. I'm, I'm hoping to get you back. Uh, you, I've looked at a lot of your articles. They're all pertinent to what's going on here uh, with your background. Anything you want to add, though, as we wrap up this session? No, John. I just want to thank you for having me on. It was great talking. Oh, thank you so much. So just hold on a minute. Don't hang up. I just want to touch bases for a second. But again, this is Labor Lines, uh, a radio show and a podcast on KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 FM, and Labor Lines on Anchor FM and some other podcasts. And you can get hold of me at laborlinejohn at yahoo.com and uh, via Twitter at laborlinejohn. Thank you.
right or what was wrong Never taught me to play guitar, never taught me to write songs One thing that she taught me, I'll remember for all time That's that you should never walk across a picket line I would never walk across a picket line Solidarity forever don't mean just sometimes Born with the union, cross my heart and hope to die I should ever walk across a picket line Took me to the factory where the workers were on strike Company had called in staff to break the union's might Mom went to the front and she addressed those greedy swine Said I dare any of you men to walk across the picket line Oh I would never walk across a picket line Solidarity forever don't mean just sometimes Long live the union cross my heart and hope to die I should ever walk across a picket line One of them came forward and he had something to say No woman will stand between me and one day's pay I don't care about the others, I am taking what is mine That he tried to walk across our union's picket line I would never walk across a picket line Solidarity forever don't mean just sometimes Long live the union, cross my heart and hope to die I should ever walk across a picket line Mom called him a dirty scab and gave him two pieces of her mind She picked up and she threw every rock that she could find And when he called the cops on her, she kicked his behind And said that's what you get when you walk across a union's picket line Oh, I would never walk across a picket line Solidarity forever don't mean just sometimes Long live the union, cross my heart and hope to die I should ever walk across a picket line What my mother used to say We're fighting for a better world Not just for better pay And if we stick together Then we'll win this fight in time As long as we don't walk across Each other's picket lines Everybody! I would never walk across a picket line Solidarity forever Don't mean just sometimes Long live the union Cross my heart and hope to die Why should ever walk Across a picket line I should ever walk across a picket line This will always be my, my uh, personal best favorite. It's a hard life wherever you go. Thank you all. Shameless. We pass a child on the corner, he 
horse And Seamus says, no, what chance is that kid got? And I say from the back, I don't know He says there's barbed wire at all of these exits And there ain't no place in Belfast for that child to go Cause it's a hard life, it's a hard life, it's a very hard life It's a hard life wherever you go And if we poison our children with hatred Then a hard life is all to tell for And there ain't no place in Belfast for that child at all That man in front of me Is calling black people trash to his children And he's the only trash here I see And I'm thinking this man wears a white coat In the night when his children should sleep But they'll slip to the windows and they'll see They'll think that white hood's all they need Cause it's a hard life, it's a hard life It's a very hard life It's a hard life wherever you go And if we poison our children with age Then a hard life is all that they'll know And there ain't no place in Chicago for those kids to
twelve misty mountains I've walked and I've crawled over six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been ten thousand miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a heart It's a heart And it's a heart It's a heart It's a heart We Gonna fall What did you see, my blue-eyed son? Tell me, what did you see, my darling young one? I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it Saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping Saw a room full of men with their hammers bleeding I saw a white ladder all covered with water Saw ten thousand talkers whose tongues were all broken I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children And it's hard, it's hard And it's hard, it's hard, it's hard Me gonna fall What did you hear, my blue-eyed son? Did you hear, my darling young one? I heard the sound of the thunder, it roared out a warning Heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world I heard one hundred drummers whose hands were blazing Heard ten thousand whispering and nobody listening I heard one person starve, I heard many people laughing Heard the song of a poet who died in the gutter Mitchell covering, yeah, Dylan's It's a Hard Rain. Before that, Nancy Griffin, the late Nancy Griffin, who died this year or last year at 68, A Hard Life. Evan Greer, picket line song. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, long time. And the, uh, started out uh, this segment with the second half of the interview with Nick Dreger. The show is Labor Lines. I'm John Andrzejczyk. It is on KRFP. 90.3 FM, krfp.org, that's krfp in Moscow, Idaho, excuse me. 
I am going to uh, reload a replay, if you will. I'm going to load a replay coming up at the top of the hour. It's going to fill out the last uh, 29 minutes and 30 seconds of the remnant of the show. So I'll go right out with it. It's by Alex Ebers. It is about her experience in organizing the organizing effort at uh, Stardust Cafe right there in uh, Manhattan, the famous Stardust Cafe. So I'm going to run that and just go out with the show with nothing else. If you want to get hold of me, you can do so at laborlinejohn at yahoo.com. If you want to follow me, you can do that at Twitter at laborlinejohn. If you want to listen to the show again, part of it or all of it, you could do that at Labor Lines, the podcast on Anchor FM, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Test, Google, and other platforms. Thank you. Yeah, where she just told me she got through uh, shoveling some snow today, the 3rd of February, is Alexis. Alexis, uh, works at uh, Stardust Diner in New York City, a place very many of us are familiar with. And uh, in a recent article in organizing.work, she uh, looks at the fourth anniversary of the strike there at uh, Stardust uh, and reflects on that. She's going to share the story there and then get into uh, how things are like now that um, the workplace is organized. So Alexis, Thank you for your time. Thanks for joining me. And I'm just going to turn it over to you. Thank you for having me, John. Uh, So a little background, I suppose, about the uh, organizing efforts at Stardust and uh, the ensuing strike that was the subject of the article. Uh, Servers at Ellen Stardust Diner in Times Square uh, began to organize their workplace in mid-2016, and you may know the Stardust Diner as home of the world-famous singing waitstaff. So they started uh, organizing in mid-2016 and uh, went public in a New York Times article in late August of 2016. And the uh, retaliation, uh, the alleged retaliation, I should say, from Uh, Management and the owners was quite swift. Um, Within about a month, they had uh, terminated 16 of the uh, organizers. And then in January of 2017, in the span of about uh, six hours, they terminated another 16 organizers. And since uh, we had a settlement, uh, the union Stardust Family United, uh, that is organized through the Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW, had a settlement with the diner in October of 2017, and 16 of those that were terminated were reinstated, and the records of all of those terminated were cleared uh, in terms of legally, as well as their disciplinary record at the diner. But this strike that was one of was probably the largest action we took as a union happened about a week after that day in January 2017, with the 16 people getting terminated in the span of a few hours. 
And what was really remarkable about this strike is that the majority of people, observers that walked off the floor were people hired to replace those that were terminated uh, due to organizing efforts. So uh, I was actually one of those people that was hired in about September of 2016. So I was technically a scab when I started at Ellen Stardust Diner. I didn't really understand what was going on with the union. And I started getting interested um, in December or so of that year and was elected secretary in early January of Stardust Family United. So I was brand spanking new. And uh, when I, I was actually working the night that those 16 servers were terminated uh, and it was very difficult and it really cemented my commitment to the union and the commitment to just fighting for a fair and safe workplace. So the evening of the strike, I had worked that morning shift and knew something was going to be happening at the evening shift, but didn't quite know what, and no one on the evening shift would uh, spill the beans, which was actually really good, but <laughs> they didn't. And they told me to go to a bar close by to the diner if I wanted to know what was going on, um, where people were meeting, and I assumed that it was a union meeting or a uh, uh, the, the, just people hanging out waiting to hear what happens on the PM shift. And when I went with uh, my friend, M.A., who had no experience with the union, uh, it, the bar was filled with all of these uh, Stardust people with signs and like getting ready to go over to the diner. And I found out that the servers were walking out that evening on strike. Uh, and it was very exciting. Um, we all like marched over to the diner together to uh, receive those walking out so that they wouldn't be alone, so that they would feel supported. And they, the, the 11 servers that walked out came out the kitchen door. We sprayed them with silly string and glitter and, and cheered them and, and hugged them and started an uh, acoustic musical protest, essentially, uh, because there's usually a line around the, the corner to get in for customers um, to the diner. And our goal was to what we called kill the line and tell people, you know, the entertainment's out here. All of the singers are out here because that's why they were there was to see the singers. And uh, we did, it was a busy Friday night on, um, you know, in January and we managed to shut the diner down at about nine o'clock because nobody was going to go in without the singing servers there singing. So it was really exciting and just a major show of solidarity for uh, all of the uh, people who had been terminated, all of the new people, it was really powerful just seeing the, you know, almost different generations of Stardust servers and union organizers there from people that had been terminated uh, to people who were still working in the diner to people that were brand new, all coming together and just saying, um, we love and support each other. And that's why we're here to make this statement and show the owners that we're serious. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, 
Alexis, and a couple things come to mind. Uh, one is uh, the expression, and I, the, uh, I'll uh, uh, quote Thomas Jahagen, a uh, labor lawyer, actually, is uh, they, and we know who they are, uh, uh, they don't fear the strike, they fear solidarity. Uh, without solidarity, a strike is easy to break. Uh, with solidarity, uh, it, it, while it still is going to be a struggle, um, it, 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 it's that much more winnable. Um, listening to you, uh, I, I, I'm absolutely certain it was very exciting. Uh, it's a very transform, transformative uh, event in people's lives. It certainly was mine uh, when I became active in supporting uh, strikers at a mine here in, in Idaho. It was a three-year strike. Uh, the group I was with and still am, the Democratic Socialists of America, our local regional chapter uh, stepped up from day one, um, and uh, on my radio show and all, when I would uh, announce upcoming rally for these uh, workers, uh, I would condition it. I said, just be aware, because uh, if this would be your first rally, first strike line to uh, walk, um, uh, you will not leave the same person. Right. No, that's so true. Um, I think that was exactly what you said, a transformative experience for everyone that was involved. And uh, the people that I interviewed for this article I did for the fourth anniversary of the strike mentioned that to me. Um, one server in particular that walked out said it was a cornerstone in her development as a young adult um, and and just with her as a person. So it's it does change you and I think for the better and really just shows you that as this server said, you can be capable of scary things. Absolutely. And, and together, and again, if it really, uh, solidarity, um, uh, in all age, all times, all eras, uh, in humanity's history, uh, uh, has always been attacked, always been degraded. Uh, but it, it, and certainly in our time when uh, so many forces are out there to atomize um, our society. And so it, uh, when one real understands that you're not alone, uh, that's very empowering, isn't it, Alexis? Absolutely. And uh, Stardust, I think, was in a uniquely advantageous, like, advantageous situation in terms of solidarity, in terms of being in a position to use this model of unionism uh, to their advantage because everyone there had been working together for such a long time and they really did consider each other family. That's why they called themselves Stardust Family United. So when their coworkers were terminated, it wasn't just their coworkers. It was their dear, dear friends who they considered family. And so it, it didn't really take much to motivate people to stand together in solidarity because of that. Right. And uh, that is interesting. All workplaces uh, offer that uh, uh, facet of where you be, you have that sense of uh, family, of connection. But uh, from my experience in the restaurant work, um, and I've, I've worked my share, I actually bust tables when I was 11 in Chicago until my parents figured out where I was going every morning uh, during summer vacation. 
Uh, our children worked at my uh, my mother was what we call back in the day a waitress. All her work in life, I feel there's uh, it's very fertile ground for some reason or other uh, in uh, the restaurant work. There there just seems to be this connection. Uh, you know, everyone's kind of uh, if you're busy, you're busy. You're working together. Um, so to me, it's no surprise that 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 sense was there. Yeah, and I think Stardust also has the additional advantage that way of it's a very unique restaurant all the servers are performers and because of that because you get to perform as a server there they're not as interested in moving on to the next restaurant job if this one you know isn't perfect isn't if if they're not super happy as a worker there People are very invested in staying, in uh, improving the workplace. Uh, It was just kind of a perfect convergence of all of these uh, qualities that made up this situation. Um, Also, the fact that uh, the servers as performers are all very outgoing. We're not, you know, it doesn't make us nervous to stand up in front of a crowd and voice our opinion. So it was really... uh, a, a great confluence of these conditions uh, that made it like the perfect storm really for solidarity action. Uh, yeah, that's great. And that's interesting. And, and like you say, uh, the, the Stardust, everyone, uh, I'm, I'm very looking forward to putting this out because uh, the Stardust Diner uh, is uh, world famous, world, uh, uh, you know, everyone, so many people would know of it. Uh, uh, and then, but you know, uh, but what you're saying there brings to mind again, going back to the strikers here at the mine in our area, is uh, when we had one, their uh, one of their leaders speak, and uh, they were he he recounted how he was told that if he didn't uh, like the job, if he didn't like the pay and the conditions, why don't you go somewhere else? And he said his response was, "Well, actually, these are our jobs." Uh, so again, it's again it's the worker taking ownership of the workplace, isn't it? Definitely. Uh, one of the things that we did during our campaign was we would what we would call flyer the line. And so the line of customers that were waiting to get into the diner, we would just go on a busy day and talk to the people and hand out flyers, tell them what was going on uh, with the retaliation from the owners and ask them to get off the line and not give them their business. And the response we often got was, why do you care? Why don't you go somewhere else if you don't like it here? And it really was because this is our livelihood. Um, This is our life. This is the place. uh, This is a place that we love. And uh, it's, if, if we don't change something, it will never change if we don't stay and try to change the conditions here. And I also think, uh, the, the line from the song The Tower by Max Demers, which is featured in the video, he wrote about the diner. And there's a line towards the end that's the workers speaking to the owners, basically. And the lyric is, we want everyone to thrive. Uh, we're not looking to go on strike and make the owner pay and put the owner in a difficult position. What we're trying to do is work with management and the owner so that everyone can thrive uh, and make sure that the workers are part of that uh, thriving. Right. Uh, it has to be all, all of us are, are, are uh, uh, a great 
line of labor. I, I had an honor to work with Bob LaVenture. Uh, he was part of this uh, strike up in uh, this country with the miners. Uh, the way he put it, it has to be uh, all of us or none of us. Well, I say if it isn't all of us, it will be none of us. Um, yeah, it's kind of disappointing when uh, uh, when you uh, you get those responses from the customers. It's almost like they don't want to be inconvenienced by it. Uh, a lot of reasons behind that. I've spoken to uh, the editor of Organizing Work, uh, Mary Aaron Garnell. There's a lot of thought behind that. That's kind of a little bit aside of our talk here, Alexis. I'm with Alexis. She uh, helped organize uh, Ellen Stardust Steiner right there in Manhattan. Uh, wrote an article on organizing.org about it four years later. Um, and again, this is John Andercheck with Labor Lines, Labor Lines, the radio show, and Labor Lines, a podcast. So, Alexis, um, four years down the line, you know, uh, you know, speaking of the, you know, you spoke about the walkout, you spoke about the organizing, uh, but you are organizing, you are organized Stardust Family United with the International Workers of the world, IWW or Wobblies, a very historic uh, union, still alive and kicking, obviously. Um, so what's what's going on there now? Well, you know, we've been furloughed since March due to COVID-19, like most uh, restaurant workers in New York City and the country, really. So the restaurant was closed from March until October, and then reopened for about two months before closing again. And uh, the, the future is uncertain, but Stardust Family United is still active. Um, during the initial months of the pandemic, we actually put together a fundraiser on GoFundMe for our coworkers who were struggling the most, who were having trouble accessing unemployment, and we ended up raising almost $30,000 um, and distributing it between about 55 of our coworkers, most of which were back of house, um, cooks, dishwashers, and the like. But anybody that was having trouble, um, particularly accessing unemployment. So that was a major project with uh, campaigns and tiered rewards for donations that we took on and that again i think speaks to the solidarity of of the union and how that is the main uh tenant that holds us up and because the whole thing uh, nobody got paid for the many many hours of working on this fundraiser uh for putting out videos uh there were you know broadway veterans that put out videos uh, in order to support the fundraiser and raise awareness for it. And we all did this because we care about each other and we stand in solidarity with each other. And, you know, as the IWW slogan goes, an injury to one is an injury to all. So when somebody in our family is hurting, we all do what we can to help. So that is what we've been doing uh, since uh, the pandemic hit. And we also, even in just the two months that Stardust reopened uh, in the fall, we were very focused on safety measures and we brought a lot of the concerns to management and had them addressed. If they weren't addressed, we pushed until they were through direct action and uh, messaging the, the management 
And I, there's also an article on organizing work about that, I believe, called Direct Action Keeps Us Safe, uh, about the actions that we took in order to feel safe while working in this uh, pandemic environment in Times Square. So we've been focused on that. We, we spoke at our last union meeting about what will Stardust Family United look like for the next several months, particularly if the diner stays closed. And what we're focusing on right now is trying to bridge the gap as much as we can between the front and back of house because we don't work directly together most of the time and because there is a very large uh, language barrier. Most of the back of house speaks uh, Spanish and doesn't speak as much English. We're trying to bridge that gap. It's something that we've continually been challenged by. And so we're looking into offering uh, Spanish and English classes uh, on, on Zoom for workers, English classes for the back of house, Spanish for the front of house, in order to try and bridge that gap. And we have also explored the idea of featuring the talents of people that work at Stardust on our social media platforms, uh, in addition to the singing and performing uh, talents of the workers at Stardust, you know, anything else that any of the workers uh, might do as a hobby in their spare time and just featuring that for morale and for continuing to build community and solidarity. So that's what we've been working on. Well, that is very excellent, Alexis. Uh, uh, yes, I'm right. I mean, you're right. I mean, we, we, uh, humanity uh, multi-featured, you know, work is supposed to uh, improve uh, the human being. Uh, uh, it makes me think of bread and roses. You know, we work for bread and for roses. Uh, so a technical question here, um, uh, uh, Stardust Family United, is that uh, wall to wall or is that just represent the servers? So it's meant to represent the entire workplace, uh, but the membership is almost entirely servers at this point. The way we operate is we're not a business union. Uh, we don't have a contract with the employer, nor do we want one. We've never filed for election, nor do we intend to uh, unless there are extenuating circumstances. And what this means to us is that we still fight for all employees in the workplace, regardless of if they are a union member or not, regardless of their job or an industrial union branch, which, which means that you know, unlike at, say, schools where you have a different union for the teachers, the um, the office staff, the custodial staff, uh, we're an industrial branch, which means that all of the different workers in different job positions are considered uh, like under the union's jurisdiction, if, if you will. So we fight for all of the workers, even those who are not involved, who are not dues paying members. And we're, like I, like I mentioned, we are trying to bridge that gap and get other workers involved. Uh, but the active members are mostly servers at this point. 
Okay, and that, that's understandable. Again, that's very interesting. You're not a business model. You're you're organized model, um, yeah. and um, uh, it, which it reflects, uh, I would say, and you could correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, IWW's uh, philosophy and and uh, a model over uh, uh, the years, the yeah. decades. Um, Definitely. Uh, yeah, but however, I sorry. No, go I, ahead. I will just say that um, when we were working with the NLRB, um, they took our case when we filed uh, many unfair labor practice practices against uh, the diner or ULPs. Even though we did not have a contract and had never had an election, they still considered us a union. So we were recognized as a legal union by the NLRB. Yes, the NLRB, for those listening, that's the National Labor Relations Board, which was formed back in, uh, uh, I believe it might have been with the Taft-Hartley Act in the 40s or maybe before that, uh, with the Wagner Act, uh, with Roosevelt, National Labor Relations Board, unfair labor practice. You could see those as uh, NLPs sometimes. Um, but And then for listeners, again, Alexis, you make a great point here, is when two people, or two or more workers uh, joined together to advance mutual interests, uh, you have formed a union, is my understanding. Yes, that's the legal definition is um, when workers take collective action, it's considered a union action. And collective action is defined as when two or more workers work together to try and improve their workplace. And we've certainly done that. The <laughs> so the NLRB <laughs> recognized that and said, yeah, you're a union. Absolutely. Again, once again, uh, Alexis, Alexis, uh, with Stardust Family United at the world's famous uh, Stardust Diner in Manhattan, joining me today. It is February 3rd. Uh, This is John Andercheck with Labor Lines. I'm recording this from my home in uh, uh, Idaho County, Idaho, on the banks of the Clearwater River. So uh, the technology is really working for us, Alexis. This is a very inspiring story. uh, I'm uh, uh, to just to say emotionally, um, uh, it was a victory, uh, not necessarily by the numbers, uh, but a great victory and a, a great place to have it, um, Alexis. Um, so, and again, I found uh, uh, we connected through organizing.work. I encourage anyone listening to this uh, interview as I put it up on the internet, on the web. Uh, shortly the, to find uh, organizing.work. It's a great resource uh, for many stories and uh, and educational material. Alexis, um, uh, anything else you want to throw out? Um, I guess I'll just throw out that you know, solidarity unionism is, I think, a very underused uh methodology and tool and what i also love about this model of unionism is that it can work for virtually any industry any workplace any size of workplace and is really based on the kind of four pillars that are taught in the iww's 101 training are direct. So we act through direct action. We don't rely on any formal or legal processes to get what we need. Uh, The second is democratic. Everyone has the same say. 
Some may have more responsibilities as officers, but they don't have a larger vote than anyone else in the membership. Uh, three is caring, which is, you know, the solidarity uh, aspect of it. And the fourth is industrial, the fact that we organize across all job positions uh, and don't just advocate for one small group in the workplace. So those four things really do make up uh, what makes solidarity unionism so successful. And I'm just excited for more people and more workplaces to learn about it and hopefully utilize these tools at and and become empowered because at Stardust, we certainly uh, have found empowerment through this process, uh, have found our our voice to voice our concerns. Um, you know, we had our we had our voices to sing, but now uh, we are, you know, empowered enough to use them to also protect ourselves and our fellow workers. So I, it's my hope that, you know, somebody listening to this uh, might reach out to the IWW and see how we can help their workplace. Very good, Alexis. Um, you put um, the truth, the actual example of uh, the great slogan, uh, the fate of the worker uh, is in the worker's hands. You, you took that, you took it in your hands, literally, you put it on your, in your feet, uh, you marched, uh, you know, you, uh, uh, you were there, a uh, very inspiring solidarity unionism, solidarity, uh, Sarah Nelson, uh, national labor leader, uh, put it a few years ago when she addressed the national DSA convention, Democratic Socialist America, uh, solidarity is a force created in gravity. Uh, solidarity is what's going to win our world, Alexis, and you've proved that. Thank you so much for your time. I, I find it so inspiring. I hope you uh, understand that's a very genuine um, uh, feeling on my part. Um, so with that, we'll go off, uh, go off the recording again. Uh, uh, as I agree with you. Look up the IWW, International Workers of the World. Uh, keep in mind that when uh, collective action, the definition of collective action, two or more workers uh, in effect form a union and also find organizing.work. Alexis, I'm going to stop the recording, but uh, stay on the line, as we say. Thank you so much. Um, I'll just say that I'm I'm just proud and honored to have been part of this process with the IWW and Stardust Family United. Thank you for having me, John. You're welcome. Thank you.